Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And welcome to another episode of The Field Guide. Each episode, we pick a natural history topic, do a lot of research on that topic, and then get you out into the field and share everything that we learn. So today, we are at Knox Farm State Park. This is a state park in East Aurora, a suburb of Buffalo. It's about 600 acres, and it is the former country estate of the renowned Knox family. This estate uh, was really managed as pasture land. So what we're looking at is about 400 acres of uh, open meadows for actively managed for um, hay. And then we have about 100 acres of woodland uh, mm -hmm. around us. But the woods that we're walking through right now, we've actually stopped walking. But yes. the <laughs> woods that we're in right now, this was managed more like an English woods. Because if you take a look around, do you see much understory? No. They managed this woods for fox hunting. No way. The woods were actually kept clean of um, a lot of undergrowth. But since the state has taken it over, the woods has started to take on more of an unmanaged yeah. character. But let's get on to our topic for this month. Yeah, and especially since we don't have much time. This that, is our first shortened episode. That's true. So, Steve, there's a name that I found that I think is perfect for you. Oh, no. All right. <laughs> You're an otaku. I feel like I've heard that. Is that like something from... Japanese. It is. Okay. Very yeah. good. Yeah. So uh, an otaku, I don't know if you would actually qualify because an otaku is someone who is obsessed with some aspect of Japanese culture. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that would describe me <laughs> when I'm reading manga, I guess. <laughs> right. Now, the reason this segues into our topic for today. I was wondering how this was possible. <laughs> is because the plant we're going to focus on today, Multiflora Rose, is supposedly introduced from Japan. Right, I did see that only in one spot. So there are different stories about how it came here, but the one that matches my segue was that it was introduced to the U.S. Uh, from Japan in 1866. All right, well, let's talk about ID, because the reason we stopped walking, folks, is because we actually came upon a multiflora rose shrub. Mm -hmm. So it's thorny. Uh, you have multiple stems, what are actually called canes, coming up out of the ground, uh, usually from a central point, and they usually form dense thickets. Now, mm -hmm. this, this one we're looking at here is there's uh, two individuals next to each other, so it's not real dense, but uh, that's why it was brought here. It was brought here to create wildlife habitat. It was brought here for erosion control. When did you say it was introduced by uh, 1866 Japan? is what I found. I had that it was introduced to the U.S. in the early 1800s. Oh. By 1886, it was used as rootstocks for ornamental roses in North America. And it was planted along highways for crash barriers and, and to reduce headlight glare in the medians. By the 1930s, it was used as erosion control. So it began to expand into the Northeast by the 1930s. Uh, in the 1940s, it was used widely as uh, living fences, wildlife cover, and to prevent soil erosion. And then by 1951, multiflora rose is being used more than any other shrub in conservation plantings in the Northeast. Unfortunately. Yeah, which seems sort of <laughs> weird. but Because we're going to talk about how it's an invasive, and we'll talk about that. But right. multiflora rose creates a living fence because instead of setting up you know, a wooden barrier or a stone barrier, uh, especially for livestock, you could plant a row of multiflora rose and it would create a natural barrier. Right. You wouldn't need as much maintenance as, say, a, a wooden fence row would. Right. Some jerk could come around and just kick your fence to pieces, but no <laughs> one's going to come around and try to kick your uh, <laughs> thorn bush to pieces. Because <laughs> it is very thorny. You do not want to roll around in multiple yeah. rows. That's happened to you a few times, right? Your fence was kicked to pieces? <laughs> it does. It does. 
can we talk about ID? Sure. All right. So the individual plants can grow to about 15 feet tall, mm -hmm. but usually they're about six to eight feet tall. Yeah. Usually going to find it's an edge habitat. It prefers full sun, but it mm -hmm. can grow into a forest interior. Multiflora rose is not shade tolerant. It does a couple interesting things in the forest interior. It initiates leaf growth earlier, and it retains its leaves a little bit longer than canopy vegetation. Oh. So it has a higher fecundity on the forest edges than Good in work. the forest interior, but it even has pretty low seedling recruitment, even in highly suitable areas. So even on the forest edges, it's not the greatest. One source I found said a plant can produce 500,000 seeds, and another mm -hmm. one said each plant can produce up to a million seeds, even if the percentage of uh, oh, recruitment yeah. is yeah. low. That's still. Ooh. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit later on why they might produce so many seeds, and not all those seeds are viable. Right, I think right. that's an important that's part. That's right. I remember you uh, mentioned that. But one thing that I was going to say about inside the forest interior is that it survives in the forest interior without really producing any fruit. It can exist in this lag phase until suitable conditions arise. So that could be like a disturbance that opens up a sure. bit of sunlight well, in the interior. A lot of young trees do that too. Exactly. Yeah. So like, yeah. So little maples and other trees will kind of sit right. in this lag state. Mm -hmm. waiting for a big tree to fall to create an opening. Right. If that disturbance doesn't come, right. then that individual plant is going to die. They are perennial. Do you remember reading about layering? Yeah. When the end of the cane touches the ground, it can actually take root. Right. So then you get uh, lots of layers, and they just form these dense thickets. It, it makes good wildlife habitat, at least on the surface. Right. So. <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> so uh, there is something I did want to say about the rose family in general, and that is that in the rose family, stipules are common. Bill, do you want to say what a stipule is? If you look at the leaf, mm -hmm. this is a compound leafed plant. So if you would pull the leaf off where it grows from the stem, the base, yeah. you would be holding in your hand the leaf stem, and then there'd be a number of leaflets on it. So it would have 5 to 11 toothed oval leaflets, mm -hmm. each about an inch to an inch and a half long. And at the base of that leaf stem, at the base of the petiole, there are these winged, <laughs> I just lost it, the winged stipules. Yeah, stipules. So they're winged, but they're fringed. Yes. So it looks like it has these little fringed wings at the base of the stem, and that's a great field mark because other members of the rose family, some other members do have those stipules. But it's not going to be as deeply fringed or, right. they, I've also heard comb-like. Um, yeah, that's and, a good one. And I guess they extend about half the length of the leaf stalk, which we can't demonstrate here. We can't really describe what we're seeing because they're we're, not. We're here winter. during the winter, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is what we're seeing. <laughs> so this is January. This is a barren, snowy landscape. Right. Yeah. So you were talking about the, the stipules. You were talking about the leaves. We talked about what the leaves look like. Uh -huh. So multiflora rose, uh, rosa multiflora, what it translates to is many flowered, and then rosa is Latin for red. But These are not you, red. But when you get into genera like that, you can't use it so literally most species in north america are actually pink they're not red and when you look at the multiflora rose it's it's neither pink nor red although sometimes it can be a little pink sometimes it can be pink yeah usually um, white it's usually white yeah. yeah so whereas the other roses will maybe have these larger flowers the multiflora rose has a bunch of small little flowers all packed together in something called a panicle right so here in uh, western new york the native rose that i've seen most often is the swamp rose mm -hmm. i think that's rosa palustris and that has a large single pink blossom 
Yeah. Uh, and it's very easy to distinguish from multiflora rose. Right. And uh, the flowers, just uh, for more botanical nerds out there, yeah. they are regular flowers, which means that they're symmetrical. They're not irregular like a violet or an orchid. Um, and also they're perfect flowers, so they're bisexual. They have both male and female parts on right. one flower. They're capable of self-pollination. Yes, they are capable of self-pollination, yeah. though the stamens are slightly turned outwards from the pistils sure. to try to reduce the chance of that self-fertilization. Right. Oh, it's a non-native species. Maybe pollination is a limiting factor to the spread of this plant. Is it having any difficulty sexually reproducing? And it turns out it's not. It actually utilizes a lot of generalist insect pollinators. So its most common pollinator are hoverflies. You see those guys a lot. They have large heads. And, mm-hmm. um, and then also the honeybee. But one strange thing about this, even though it has all these pollinators, there is a low number of viable seeds, like we had said before, in dissected rose hips. It produces tons of seeds, but a lot of them are not viable. Yes. Which would seem like, well, that's a weird thing for a plant to do. Why go through the trouble of producing seeds if they're not going to be viable? But if they're trying to fool pests. Right. There is a, a pest that does devour the seeds. Hopefully. I'm one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, um, we'll talk about the fruit in just a sec. Okay, so there was the study from, again, We Biology and Management in 2013, and they were looking at something called the rose seed megastigmus wasp. Its larvae feeds on seeds. So the female will come in, lay the seeds inside of the rose hips, um, actually sort of non-discriminately. So sometimes there's one larvae in a rose hip sometimes there's up to seven they had a pretty big range but the problem with this was that the larvae was only found in 27 percent of the rose hips and really that shows that they have a truly limited potential as a biocontrol but even if they were planting them in more than that 35 percent of rose hips had no viable seed and while there's only 8.6 seeds per rose hip normally 6.5 aborted seeds per rose hip is the average and can those larvae they're depending on the seeds. Yes. So if the seeds aren't viable, the larvae aren't going to survive? I believe so, okay. yeah. False attractant? Of, I guess, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, they're just trying to trick the wasp into wasting A some... dummy hip. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dummy, yeah. <laughs> but that would make sense. That They're good with dealing with pests. They have different methods for reproduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of invasive species, they're adaptable. Uh, they can do well in different conditions. Yep. And that's why they're such a pain in the butt uh, when it comes to how they fare against native species. All right, now, you jumped ahead a little bit. Sorry? We want to talk about hips, because we didn't tell people what the rose hips are. So right. people listening may not be familiar with that term. The The fruiting body of the multiflora rose, and what we say most roses, right, mm-hmm. is a hip. Yep. Now, it looks here on the multiflora rose, it's pea-sized. They look like red berries, but they are not berries. And they're actually not fruits. They're <laughs> urn-shaped receptacles containing mm-hmm. the fruits. Inside the rose hips... We say the fruits are in there, but they're they're not they're they're not fleshy. They're dry, bony seed structures, and I'll let you share the term. It's an akeen. Akeen. And uh, when you're thinking about an akeen, I don't want to get into any botanical jargon here, but it's just a fruit that contains a single seed, and that seed is attached to the ovary wall in just one little point. Right. So think of maybe like a sunflower seed, a maple seed, like a maple seed, like a maple samara, or even strawberry seeds. Yep. Those are all examples of akeens. Akeens, yeah. yeah. So some people think of like maybe the strawberry, the whole strawberry is the fruit. That's not true. A strawberry is like an aggregate fruit. Right. It's holding all these akeens together. And those those little bumps on the strawberry that look like the seeds, those are not the seeds. No. Those are the akeen. And, and inside, it, inside that is that the, seeds. Is the right. seed. Yeah, the akeen is the fruit. Yeah. It's so weird to think oh. of, you know, <laughs> this strawberry, the part we eat that's so sweet and good. Yeah, that's not the fruit. Here we have some rose hips, and I'm going to reach down and grab a couple, and I'm going to eat one. 
Do you want to try one? Sure. So I can feel the Akeens in there. Yeah, I just bit them all to pieces. Yeah. I wish we would have dissected one to see how many... Uh, we can do that later. Yeah, Akeens are really in it. So it's uh, the skin, the best way I've described it to people, I think, is it's kind of like a fruit roll-up. I don't know. <laughs> Steve's laughing derisively at me. <laughs> it kind of tastes like a, what, a cherry, a vaguely cherry, vaguely fruity. There's a bad aftertaste sometimes. <laughs> but they make good tea. So uh, rose hips, extremely high in vitamin C. Our man, John Eastman, uh, mm-hmm. he's in his account of multiflora rose, he claims that three rose hips contain as much vitamin C as an orange and 60 times as much as a lemon. Uh, and I did look, try to look those figures up, and I did find a study that looked at um, the vitamin and nutrient contents of different fruits, uh, be they the fruits you'd find in the supermarket or fruits you'd find out in the wild. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but rose hips were much higher in vitamin C than oranges or lemons or things. Was it per weight? No, it was by weight. Okay, by it weight. It was by weight. Okay, yeah, so you'd have to eat a lot of these things, really, to... Well, right, because yeah. they're so they're pea sized. So. Right, they're very small. Yeah, let's try to find some more multiflora rose. Yeah, maybe we can find some with a ton of rose hips on it, because that's going to be important for some uh, bird and mammal interactions. Yes. Now, while we're on our way here, I just want to talk about uh, one paper that I looked at. It was mm-hmm. put out by the National Forest Service, and it was called an assessment of multiflora rose in the northern forests. Mm-hmm. So this region of the Forest Service, if you can imagine uh, kind of dividing our country up, if you took a section of it where the western end is the Dakotas, the southern end is like West Virginia, and then it goes up into the north northeast. That's so it really is like a quarter of the country. <laughs> right, It's the yeah. nor- that's what they call the northern forest region. Okay. And in 22 out of those 24 states, they found multiple rows on uh, national forest plots. Okay. So they sent teams out just doing plant surveys looking for multiflora rose. And on average, multiflora rose was on a quarter of the plots. Okay. And here in New York State, it was present in 25 to 50% of the plots. And when it was there, when they found it, it covered 6 to 9% of the habitat. And they did find that the more roads that there were through the forest, the more multiflora rose they found. So that makes sense. It's coming in. Uh, along those human-made corridors. Yeah, just making one road through something really adds so much edge habitat. <laughs> right. And this study was from 2014, so this is pretty recent. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right, here's another uh, multiflora rose. Okay. See some hips? Yeah, a lot more hips on this one. So we found some the other day, though. Remember those ones we found that were very dry? Oh, they were almost black. You know, I wonder if those had anything to do with the non-viable seeds. Oh, I didn't even think about it. It would have been fun to dissect and see what's up. Because the seeds, they're supposed to stay on all winter. Right, and you'd want it to be bright red to attract wildlife. Which leads me to another study. Oh, go ahead. So uh, what does the word synchronous mean? The timing is planned in such a way where it goes along with something. All happens together, right? So I found a study. Now, this is an older study. This is from 1979, but it was from evolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, it looked at the timing of fruiting. Okay. And it looked at how plants have evolved to have their fruits develop at different times. So multiflora rose, its fruits really don't come out until late summer. It's really a fall and winter fruit because that's when we see it. That's right. when it's ready to have its seeds dispersed. But other plants that would ripen in the summertime, they do things a little differently. Their fruits ripen at different times. Even on a single plant, 
you'll have some of the fruits ripening at one time and then a few weeks later some of the other ones will ripen Um, so it's kind of ripening throughout the growing season but fall and winter fruits will very often all ripen together and the reason that they do that obviously they're doing it on purpose but Uh the reason behind that is because during the summertime the wildlife that's feeding on you they're going to be usually on territory they're going to be passing you on a pretty regular basis right um but you also have invertebrates to deal with, insects that ruin it for its intended purpose of right. dispersing the seeds. So if you kind of hold some fruit in reserve mm-hmm. and insects destroy your, your fruit that's available, uh, say, in June, well, in July, you're going to have a bunch more that's ripening, and hopefully the wildlife around is going to disperse those seeds. Right. Whereas during the wintertime, like here with multiflora rose... It's going to stay on the plant all winter without anything bothering Without it. any insects bothering it, and right. you're also going to have wildlife moving through at much less regular intervals. Mm -hmm. The way they they worded it in the study was, uh, the plants rely on the irregular movements of winter frugivores for seed dispersal. And a frugivore is an animal that eats mostly fruit. Right. The seed requires a period of freezing, more or less like cold stratification. And also, and something that I found sort of interesting, is that the seed can remain viable in the soil for a decade or longer. Yeah, I found 20 years. 20 years? Okay, that makes it twice as hard to get rid of. Right. (laughs) Have you ever looked into a, um, a winter nest or uh, a bird box, open it up to see what's in there in the wintertime, and you find little bits of rose hips? No, yeah, I, I haven't seen that. I've seen that maybe a handful of times, really? and that's uh, evidence that um, uh, white-footed mice are in the neighborhood. Nice. Because they'll often feed on rose hips. They're going for the seeds, mm-hmm. and they'll leave the... Uh, the hip, the outer outside behind. I actually do want to bring up white-footed mice in a second, okay. but there's a lot of birds that eat this, but really it's not a big part of their diet. It's really just a, a secondary type of food. It's it's not the best food in the world. But the one bird that we might be able to consider it the main bird associate with multiflora rose is the northern mockingbird. And a big reason for that is that by 1951, like I said, multiflora rose was being used more than any other shrub in conservation plantings in the Northeast. Yeah, right. And from the 50s to the 80s, the mockingbird range was also expanding. There was a study done in in the Journal of American Birds in 1982, and they found that 31% of the diet was multiflora rose. But when you go by dry weight, it's 72, almost 73% of the dry weight and it's about 73% of the calories that the bird is getting. There was a few sumacs in the diet. There was a um, honeysuckle in the diet. Man, they eat crap. They actually get this slight positive energy balance when they're feeding on it. And it also they also use it as nesting locations like some other uh, bird species do. So with the white-footed mice, what you were saying, sometimes you'll see it in like nest boxes. You can also see it in uh, sometimes there will be nests in the multiflora rows. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and if the nest is abandoned, the white-footed mice may actually reuse that nest for their own nests. And you could look for piles of chewed apart rose hips on oh, that yeah. nest to, uh, to sort of see that. There's other mammals that use multiflora rose. Uh, black bears, skunks, squirrels, white-tailed deer, rabbits, beavers, meadow voles. There's a lot of stuff that uses it. But it's not a preferred food. Right. Unless it sounds like, unless you're a mockingbird. Right. <laughs> Although there was one study in 2014 that found that deer may actually help keep honeysuckle and multiflora rose in check. So oh, sometimes so deer some, are doing something good. Sometimes, for once, deer. <laughs> it's not the deer's fault. No. They, uh, it was our fault. Now we can see evidence here of deer feeding. Do you see that? No. Uh, how do you tell that again? So since deer don't have those upper front teeth, when they grab onto the end of a branch, they're just ripping and pulling. Mm-hmm. So here you can see it. That's so if open. you see a clean cut, what, what are you looking at? So if you, you see a clean cut, like a 45-degree angle, then you're looking at someone um, with very sharp front teeth, and that's probably going to be uh, like around here. It would be an eastern cottontail. Okay. Now, a few episodes back, we talked about pigments 
and mm-hmm. leaves. We could talk about that here because one of the studies I found talked about birds and it was wondering if they're selecting fruits for their anthocyanin compounds. Right. Uh, so when we think of anthocyanins, that's one of the pigments that you can find. Sometimes it shows up in fruits, sometimes it shows up in leaves. And this study looked at were birds selecting fruits uh, to get them ready for migration? Mm-hmm. Because when you have uh, plants with these anthocyanin compounds, they're going to have a lot of antioxidants. If you're doing aerobic exercise and, and, and you're, you're using al- oxygen and, and you're alive, yeah. um, <laughs> reactive oxygen species, aka free radicals more or less, that's an unavoidable byproduct of respiration. And what they'll do is they'll bind to things that they're not supposed to. It causes oxidative stress and it's very bad for the animal. For birds in particular, they're exposed to high levels of oxidative stress from like long distance flights like migration. Right. They're really going to have to somehow offset this. And this study looked at dietary antioxidants. So they looked at five or six different plants mm-hmm. that produce berries that are eaten by migrating birds. And they looked at some that have purple berries and some that have red berries. Now, Both we know are anthocyanins. Anthocyanins. <laughs> yeah. And in this particular study, the two species that were purple, arrowwood and Virginia creeper, mm-hmm. uh, those have higher levels of anthocyanins in them. The oriental bittersweet, the multiflora rose, and winterberry. Sure. Those were the ones with lower anthocyanins. And they were consumed at a very slow rate. Right. So the birds were selecting for the purple berries with the higher anthocyanins. Right. So the study concluded that birds may select anthocyanin-rich fruits during migration to protect themselves from the potentially damaging effects of oxidative stress. Right. So we're thinking about antioxidants still. And there's two very important categories of antioxidants. So you have hydrophilic antioxidants, and those are attracted to or they're dissolved by water. And then you have the lipophilic antioxidants, and those are dissolved in fats or oils. They studied all these different fruits from all these different species that are present during specifically migration time. And they found no difference between fruits in terms of the hydrophilic antioxidants. But they found significant differences in the lipophilic antioxidants. So the the antioxidants that are dissolved in fats. They're going to stick around for a while. And they have two different types of lipophilic antioxidants. There's something called tocopherols and carotenoids. Oh, I've seen those tocopherols, yeah. Yeah. They add those to foods. Do they? Yeah. Okay. They're a lipophilic antioxidant. And there was differences, like I said. So there were some fruits that were high in tocopherols, the viburnum, so maybe like arrowwood, and also northern bayberry. And then there was other plants that were high in carotenoids, or carotenoids, carotenoids. (laughs) whatever, (laughs) Um, like oriental bittersweet, another uh, non-nasive invasive. That was awesome. (laughs) Non-native invasive. Uh, I like (laughs) non-nasive invasive. I might keep that in. You should. Okay, the ones that were high in carotenoids were oriental bittersweet and multiflora rose. And so what the study's showing is that birds are getting different types of antioxidants depending on the fruits that they consume. Viburnum, the arrowwood, it actually was the highest in fat. It was the highest in total lipophilic antioxidants, and it was the highest in tocopherols. And it was also consumed the most. So what we're seeing is that lilophilic antioxidants, especially tocopherols, they may be important in antioxidants for birds during auto-migration. Whereas in oriental bittersweet and multiflora rose, there was exceptionally high levels of carotenoids, which had a negative relationship with consumption. So it seemed like the more carotenoids there were, the less the birds were consuming it. Chokeberry, bittersweet, and multiflora rose, they were the lowest in fat. They were the highest in carbohydrates but they were among the lowest in total lipophilic antioxidants and tocopherols, and they were the least consumed species. Now, is this on just they were looking at migrating birds or just... They this were is sh- migrating birds. Okay. Right. Uh, antioxidants, they're very important, but they're not all the same. 
and they're not all valued in the same way. Yeah, because there's a lot of different antioxidants out there. Right. Birds may avoid some antioxidants to get other antioxidants. Yeah, because my study was just looking at anthocyanins. Right. They weren't looking at carotenoids Mm -hmm. or the, what are the other ones? Tocopherols. Tocopherols. Yeah. Okay. So there was another study from the Northeast Naturalist in Rochester. Birds need to refuel at their stopover spots um, during migration. Native fruits in this study had the highest fat, anywhere from 7% to 49% fat which is a lot of fat. Yeah. This included uh, different dogwood species, arrowwood, viburnum. Arrowwood comes up in almost all the studies that I find on this. Um, and then spice bush. Every single invasive in this study had um, less than 1% fat. So this is like wow. problem species like common buckthorn, multiflora rose, uh, European cranberry bush, which I, I've never come across. And then you have some of the loniceras, honeysuckles. And another interesting part of the study was they looked at the water content. The lowest water content out of all the species was multiflora rose. That makes sense. Yeah, very low water content. Those but, hips are dry. But still, surpri- <laughs> but surprisingly high still, it was 55.91% water? water content. And then in lonicera, it was 88.77%. Now that makes sense. Those are some wet fruits. Multiflora rose, common buckthorn, and the lonicera, the honeysuckles, they had very low consumption. Whereas dogwoods and the viburnums, they were much more valuable um, than non-native shrubs. Not only did they have these higher fat contents, but generally they had higher water content, except for the lonicera, which had the highest water content. And that's something that a lot of people don't think about in the winter, right? You lose water very easy. Every time you breathe out... You're losing water. Right, yeah, because the difference between the relative humidity inside your body versus outside your body, you're losing more water during the winter than you are in the summer. A lot of people don't think about that. That has nothing to do with what I'm about to talk about. (laughs) So we just talked about consumptive uses, but there's just one quick thing I want to say about non-consumptive uses. You're going to talk about nesting. Yes, nesting. Yeah. And uh, we already on. touched on this a little bit, but go ahead. There's something that we haven't been talking about and we need to talk about. Sure. And we got to get it in. And okay. that is invasive species. Absolutely. Do you want to do you want to walk and talk? Yeah, let's walk. Okay, and talk. cool. Cuz I'm getting a little chilly. Oh, and you've always been on this side. Okay. Give the audience a little bit. Oh, oh <laughs> that the 3D. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the most annoying thing to listen to. All right, go ahead. Maybe this seems obvious to some people. But I feel you make it, need to make a distinction when you're talking about exotic plants, plants that are not native. You can have invasive exotics, but you can also have non-invasive exotics. Right. Multiflora rose is an invasive exotic. It tends to take over and form pure or almost almost pure stands of itself. Right. So it decreases the biodiversity of the habitats that it's in. And um, that's the big takeaway. Right. That biodiversity is, is, is going key. down. Yeah. We, we want habitats to be as biodiverse as possible uh, and multiflora rose isn't helping to make that happen it's, it's working against that you can have exotic plants that aren't invasive they're not going to decrease the biodiversity in a, a substantial way yeah and you can even have invasive native plants like right black locust trees in certain conditions can be an invasive tree even though they're native yeah so what we're getting into now in this last part of this episode is uh, multiflora rose and its use as a nesting site. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we also got to point out that not every aspect of invasive plants are bad. Yeah, They can benefit some wildlife, like you said, the mockingbird, even though multiflora rose has spread across the continent. But does the mockingbird need to be <laughs> up that far in the northeast? <laughs> Probably not. And is the mockingbird spreading because the multiflora rose is spreading? Or are both of them spreading because of some other change in the landscape? We could talk about ecological traps. So there's a, a general sense in the research that I found 
that invasive species can be an ecological trap, and that is they may be attractive to wildlife species, but in the long run, they're not going to be beneficial to them. Sure, like fast food restaurants. Exactly. <laughs> Let's looked... start naming names. So. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to. We don't want to. We just get sued. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to uh, discourage any potential sponsors. Right. right. <laughs> so, the studies that I found, though, that looked at multiflora rows, when you look at nesting, those non-consumptive uses you're talking about, there wasn't a huge detriment to. Lots of birds. Were you finding that? I didn't see that it was bad. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I didn't see that either. So why don't you introduce what you have? There's a few bird species that use multi-floor rows for nesting. Northern cardinals, gray cat birds, northern mockingbirds. There's a study in northeastern Illinois. Okay. What they found was that when you increase the proportion of invasive trees, you decrease the relative abundance of both aerial sailors um, and ground nesters. Oh. So both nesting and just flying overhead. But shrub nesters showed a positive response towards invasive shrubs and whatnot. When you say positive response, do you mean they were choosing it to nest in or they were successfully nesting in it more often? I believe it would be successfully nesting. Okay, all right. This sort of brings up a problem. If we have some species benefiting from invasive plants, what's going to happen when we just tear them all out, right? We have this renovation project. We're like, oh, we don't want these plants. We rip them all out. Suddenly, those birds aren't doing as well, right? Right. What the study is suggesting is that we can remove the invasive trees. That's fine. There doesn't seem to be much of a detriment to that. But let's just thin the invasive understory plants, especially when native plants are very few in number in that area. So don't just clear everything out. That's the big takeaway from the study. I think it's important to say that, yes, invasive species have many detrimental effects, but it's not so simple as, we'll just get rid of them and then everything will be fine. Right, yeah, that's not a responsible right. management plan. <laughs> What's wrong? Multiflora rose, more like multiflora blows, <laughs> right? So don't, let's not, let, I'm not going to try to pretend like I like multiflora rose. No. You just have to be careful of when you're trying to deal with it, right? Right. So let me just sort of end on a little factual rhetoric. And I don't want to end on a positive note, like, oh, we can leave some of the multiflora rose. <laughs> what I'm going to say is that in the U.S. alone, there are about a, a thousand plant species that are either threatened or endangered. And about 40% of those are at risk from um, invasive species, either due to direct or indirect contact. So maybe um, predation or, or competition or something. And I don't know, the only positive effect of multiflora rose is cover for wildlife. Right. Woo! <laughs> There's lots of natives that provide cover for wildlife. Exactly right. Yeah. And I think that's an important part where, sure, there is some value, but there's still a problem there. Right. And we can't say, oh, it's fine. We just have to be careful of the way we manage it. We can't just rip it out. I feel like I'm making it sound easy, but <laughs> it's, um, it's a complicated thing. And, it needs and we just got to be, be careful. It needs to be thoughtful. Right. It has to be yeah. thoughtful. I like that. So that, that's more or less what I have. Do you have anything more? Well, I think that's that's a good place to stop. Right. Because uh, ending with Steve's speech, I think, is a... <laughs> <laughs> My beautiful multi-flora blows speech. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be like the I have a dream speech in years to come. All right. So uh, I think we want to end with, with a few things here. First, we want to tell people, check our website for Works Cited, if you're yes. interested in the studies that we've talked about. And we also want people to check for the mistakes that uh, we will discover uh, in editing and through listening to the podcast ourselves, we'll post any mistakes and corrections that uh, 
we find along the way. Yeah, I just sort of rewrite a lot of the notes and mistakes. I like them. I think they're <laughs> they're just as good as the episode itself. <laughs> and then uh, I also did want to encourage people to please leave a review on iTunes for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to read one of the reviews that we have. So yeah. Steve didn't want me to read this because he's a humble guy. He <laughs> felt like we're tooting our own horn. But I may be the most humble person out there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but Jamie Jorgensen. Uh, He said, love these guys. This is my favorite natural history podcast. Each episode is packed with information, and I really love the feel that recording in the field gives. So thank you, Jamie, for taking the time to leave that review. Uh And we encourage all the listeners to do that, too. I was a little suspicious. I was like, that is such a nice review. So I checked. I was like, we don't have any friends in common. (laughs) And that was was a nice feeling. We reached out to someone that we don't know. So that's cool. All right, folks. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.